0: A mucky business with Tim Farron. Hello, I'm Tim Farron, and welcome to the show which delves into the mucky business of politics through the eyes of Christians. Well, you might think that politics is tainted by compromise and sin, and yes, you would be right to think that, but then again, so is everything else since the fall. And I think we should be praying in an informed way for our brothers and our sisters who operate in and around the world of politics. Today, we'll be joined by Tim Livesey, the chief executive officer of the charity Embrace the Middle East. He was formerly the chief of staff for Ed Miliband when he was leader of the Labour Party, press secretary to Tony Blair, and indeed to two major church leaders. We'll hear about his time in politics and touch upon the current conflicts in Israel and Gaza. But before that... Today, King Charles III gave his first king's speech as an anointed monarch at the state opening of Parliament, having given the Queen's speech on his mother's behalf last year. Now, this means, of course, that this is the first king's speech since George VI's final king's speech in 1951. This is a crucial moment in the political calendar for the government to state its top priorities and kickstart a new programme of legislation. Ceremonially, however, it is a moment of constitutional theatre that for most onlookers is frankly bizarre. The King arrives in Parliament with much pomp and proceeds to the throne in the House of Lords. Then, in one of the most striking moments, the royal official named Black Rod is sent to summon MPs from the Commons. She then has the doors slammed in her face before knocking three times and leading MPs out to hear the King deliver his speech in the House of Lords. This is a ritual harking back to the English Civil War and is an enduring symbol of Parliament's independence from the monarch. The strangeness continues. The king then reads a speech that is completely written for him by the government, setting out all of its plans for the next year of legislation. He delivers the speech as neutrally as possible to avoid hinting at any support or disagreement. So begins the process of the parliamentary year. The Prime Minister and his government set out to sell the content of the speech and the opposition and backbench MPs seek to scrutinise and challenge it. New legislation will be set in motion, which over the coming 12 months are meant to be debated in full in both Houses of Parliament with, given the government's still-sizeable majority, those bills likely to become law during that period. The King's Speech, or as it's officially known, the Speech from the Throne, traditionally ends with the following... My Lords and members of the House of Commons, I pray that the blessing of Almighty God may rest upon your counsels. Ceremony and bizarre ritual aside, this is an important moment in the parliamentary calendar to stridently pray for our nation, our government, our parliament, our democracy, our monarch, our leaders in general. The reminder on this podcast to pray for our government and our leaders may well be getting predictable by now, but 1 Timothy 2 verses 1 and 2 do still apply. We are encouraged, even commanded, to pray for our rulers, whether we agree with them or not, whether we like them or not. Many will see the pomp and ceremony or hear a snippet of the Prime Minister's defence or of the attacks from the opposition MPs and react in any number of ways. The temptation might be to moan at the pointless rituals and change the channel. It might be to throw our hands up in despair at the petty backbiting of debates and switch off altogether altogether but is our first reaction ever to pray for the people involved? No matter how much we might disagree with this government or how strongly some might oppose the monarchy, Ephesians 6 verse 12 tells us this, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We owe it to those in positions of political earthly authority to contend for them in prayer. Those of us in political parties may well be battling them at the ballot box, but ultimately it's not human authorities we're contesting when we pray for wise government and righteous legislation and justice for the poor and oppressed. We should struggle in prayer. When was the last time you prayed ambitiously for something huge? When was the last time you prayed for one specific MP, one specific bill? Why not bring a local newspaper or a list of your local councillors to your church's next prayer meeting and pray through it? And if, kind of like Black Rod, you've ever felt that like the door to engaging with politics has been slammed in your face, or like you and your community have been left out of the room where key political discussions are happening, perhaps now is the time to pray for those doors to be opened. Instead of feeling powerless or disillusioned, why not engage and be part of the change? Democracy only works when everyone is involved. And we especially need those who will bring Jesus' compassion and wisdom into roles at all levels of governance, local, national, even international. When the king was preparing to enter the House of Lords, he will have sat in the robing room. He will have sat opposite a mural by William Dice called The Vision of Sir Galahad and His Company. It shows Jesus Christ sat on the throne. As Jesus says in Matthew 28, verse 18... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So in this moment of great pomp and political importance, let's go to him on the ultimate throne.
1: A Mucky Business with Tim Farron.
0: Well, so to this week's guest on A Mucky Business, it's Tim Livesey, who is the Chief Executive Officer of Embrace the Middle East. We'll talk about your role in that organisation in a little while. But Tim, first of all, welcome. Thank you. I want to start off by asking you about your faith, if you don't mind, um, what it means to you, what church life was perhaps like uh, growing up, if indeed there was church
1: life for you growing up, um, and what that's like for you now. Well, there was there was church life for me growing up. I, I grew up uh, in a Catholic family. I had one of four children. Um, and we would go to Mass every Sunday. I was uh, educated in Catholic schools uh, as a teenager at a Jesuit school uh so faith was you know always part of my life uh part of family life i wouldn't say in any spectacular way, but it you know very much a, an an important ingredient uh and i and also actually i think it's important to say part of my identity mm. um as I was growing up and um it became more and more important to me as time went on
0: you um grew up in in what part of the country?
1: Well, <laughs> you'll be pleased to know, Tim, that I was actually born in Bolton in Lancashire, but uh, I sound like this because my parents moved uh, south when I was two. So we grew up near sort of Egham, Windsor, which is sort of Surrey, Berkshire borders. Yeah, I think I think my faith, well, my faith sort of grew um, at. During my education, when I was at school, I was one of those kids who actually would go to, voluntarily go to, to church where everybody else was, uh, didn't uh, and complained about having to go to church at all. Um, and then when I was at university, uh, that continued. And, 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 and really, I took I took a quite a strong sense of uh, faith into my into my professional life.
0: So let's go there. Um, you spent quite a long time in the diplomatic corps. Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Well, actually, I I was in Foreign Office terms relatively old when I joined the Foreign Office. I was twenty seven, and in fact, I just before I uh, joined the Foreign Office, which is a bit of a tortuous protest, I have to say, it took about a year. I, I treated myself to a week in in Jerusalem. That was in uh, September of nineteen eighty seven, which turned out to be, of course, I didn't know that at the time, uh, a week before the first Intifada, and that's really where my relationship with the Middle East began. But um, I joined the Foreign Office because I I guess I wanted an exciting career. Uh, I wanted to be intellectually stimulated, to be given different opportunities, not to be doing the same thing the whole time. And sure enough, it it, it delivered on that. But I left in 2006 because one of the things it didn't do was allow my faith and my working life to integrate in in a meaningful way. I mean, I think for a lot of civil servants and, and people in professional life, there's a sense in which you have to leave your faith at the door. And uh, there came a point where it had been a fantastic uh, career, but I wasn't prepared to continue to do that.
0: So you moved, I'm not sure if it was exactly at that moment, but you moved to work for Tony Blair. Um, how did that come about? And did that allow you to bring your faith into the world?
1: <laughs> well, it's an, it's an interesting question. Actually, I was still in the Foreign Office when I, when I was seconded to Number 10 in 2000. So I was in, t- in Number 10 2000 to 2002 and in the right at the heart of in the middle of that period, nine uh, eleven happened. And in fact, I was in the press office in in uh, Number Ten. I did all the sort of foreign affairs uh, comms, uh, watching the Twin Towers come down, which was you know one of those moments in your life where you know everything has changed. Incidentally, I'd say something similar about what's happening in Gaza. Mm. So um, I think oddly enough. I think number ten was a place where there was no sense of sclerosis around faith. I, I, in my time, I worked closely with a number of Jewish colleagues. There were fewer Muslims, it has to be said. I'm sure there are more now, um, and and indeed post nine eleven. But faith, I mean, my boss was Alistair Campbell, the Alistair of of uh, we don't do God fame, which actually is a is a misquote. It was not a misquote, but I think it's it, it's not meant. It's not understood as it was Out of meant context. to sound. Yeah. And, uh, of course, Tony Blair, you know, was well known to be somebody, a person of faith. So I wouldn't say that it, it impacted uh, every minute of every day. But I think number 10 at that time had the intelligence to understand that if you want to understand the world, don't push faith uh, outside the door, because, uh, you know, we are the exception, frankly, in the world. Uh, <laughs> most people, their faith is a hugely important part of their, their, their understanding of how the world should work.
0: Now, I'm going to over- oversimplify this massively, I know, Tim, but you have worked for um very close quarters in senior roles for both the primate of the Catholic Church in Great Britain and the head of the Church of England. Um, tell me about the- both of those roles and how on earth did you manage to do both?
1: Well, actually, um, I, I got a phone call from Cardinal Cormac Murphy O'Connor, who was head of the Catholic Church Archbishop of Westminster. Well, I was still at number ten, and he said, "Look, uh, would you come and work for me?" And I was thinking, "Hold on a minute, I've got five kids, I'm mid-career, <laughs> I'm not sure this is a, a wise move." Um, but uh, he was a wily, he was a wily character, and uh, he, he, I knew, I kind of knew instinctively what he would do, and that is, he, he went to the head of the Foreign Office, the Permanent Secretary at the time, someone called Sir John Kerr. And said, um, "Would you lend him to me?" So I went on a a So I worked for two years, two and a half years actually, for for for, uh, for Cormac. Um, and then went back to the Foreign Office. I did one more job, um, but I'd already really decided that that I probably wanted to move on. And, and and I ended up very surprised. Much to my surprise, I was actually chairing a a conference uh, on multiculturalism in Manchester because it was the Euro- the UK was in the presidency of the European Union. And uh, I won't bore the the listeners with the details. But the reason I chose that that theme was because I actually wanted to uh, inveigle a session on uh, religion and politics into the proceedings. And uh, French and Belgian colleagues were absolutely horrified at the thought that we could possibly talk about religion, you know, laïcité and all that. When it came to it, they were the two people who just couldn't shut up, which just goes to show how important religion is in the conduct of, of uh, social and political affairs. But anyway, I ended up working for Rowan Williams uh, a, 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 as an advisor, a public affairs advisor, and worked for Rowan for about six and a half years. When I got the call at this conference, I, the phone rang, and it was, it was a search company, and they, said, um, they explained the job, and they said, would you be interested? And I, I, laughed, I literally burst out laughing. I said, I think you've got the wrong guy. I'm a Catholic. I'm a Catholic. And they said, well, you know, anyway, the rest is history. It was a it was a very rich and, and privileged uh, experience to work for Ryan, I must say, at Lambeth Palace. A mucky business with Tim Farron.
0: We're talking to Tim Livesey, who's the chief executive of Embrace the Middle East. Uh, Tim, a moment or two ago, you compared the Twin Towers coming down on 9-11 in 2001 with what has happened in the last few weeks in Israel and Gaza. Tell us what you mean by that.
1: Well, I've just written an article for the Church of England newspaper and, you know, writing about these things at a time like this is very difficult, mm-hmm. uh, very challenging. But I found myself, you know, it's essentially the intro was to compare the experience at that time in nine, uh, when, as, just after the twin, twin Towers had come down. And I can't I can't really express just how shocking it was to watch that because they, they collapsed in. It was as though they were collapsing in slow motion. And we were watching it, and it was, we were completely aghast. And I got a call from a broadcast journalist about half an hour later, and, and she asked me a sort of rather odd question. She said, "What does this change, Tim? You know, can you explain what does this change?" And I found myself saying quite involuntarily, uh, and it now sounds rather melodramatic, "It changes everything."
0: Mm.
1: I knew it; it would change everything, in the, at least in the world of international relations. And I think that what is happening in Gaza the same applies. For those of us who've been around this subject for a long time, the scale of what is happening is horrific, and the scale is also surprising, and the precursor, uh, that is, the the awful events of October the 7th, really Mm -hmm. shocking. However, we've been expecting something for a very long time, and this has been repeating itself over and over again. This time, perhaps, everything changes because people are sitting up and taking notice.
0: Do you think it's possible that anything good could come out of all this in terms of movement towards some kind of permanent settlement?
1: Well, I, all I can say, Tim, is I very much hope so. But I, I would caution politicians, um, uh, including our own government, uh, but also the opposition, in, in sort of indulging in, in what I would call a sort of fantasy rhetoric that suddenly everything will change. And, you know, the the thing that has eluded us for so long will suddenly become possible. Well, you know, and I also, by the way, I I don't like the term intractable. We talk about it, people talk about an intractable conflict. This conflict is not intractable. It's just that there's no political will will to bring it to a close and Mm. to create the solution that you're talking about, whatever that solution might be. Um, I cannot honestly say I'm hopeful. Uh, which doesn't mean to say I don't have hope, but I do know how difficult this is. And you've got Antony Blinken—you know—credit to him on a on a on a tour of uh, Middle Eastern countries. Well, go back um, six or seven years, uh, and John Kerry was doing exactly the same, and he actually had a peace process, or the you know the sort of last dying embers mm. of a peace process that he was trying to breathe life into. He mm. failed. Anthony Blinken doesn't even have that, so I think. I think with being realistic, I think the scars of this current conflict are going to be even more difficult to overcome and to heal uh, and to move on from than has been the case really since 1967, because you, you can see the state of Gaza. It's not going to be easy to move on from that.
0: Now, you know the region well, and in your current role with Embrace the Middle East, you engage with, in particular, Christian communities in Israel and Palestine. First of all, tell us a little bit about what Embrace the Middle East is about.
1: Well, Embrace the Middle East is a a sort of a development charity, I guess you'd call it. And we exist essentially to um, support Christians in the Middle East in their social witness. So that's really the way in which Christians respond to uh, any kind of exclusion uh, marginalisation, displacement. We, so our partners, we have about 50 in Egypt, Lebanon, Israel, Palestine, uh, Iraq and Syria. They work with uh, uh, people living with all kinds of disabilities, with refugees, with people who, who are t- too impoverished to have any kind of access to education or health care. And we support those partners in their social witness in order to help sustain their presence in the Middle East. By working with them, we hope that they we can give them the wherewithal uh, to remain. Because in different ways, in different places, Christians in the Middle East, as we all know, are under huge pressure, and numbers are you know declining dramatically.
0: Tell us a little bit about about that. So in, in Gaza, how many Christians would you say there are roughly?
1: Well, Tim, when, before this conflict began, there were just short of a thousand. You can you know literally we, mm. we know exactly how many. How, how many will remain after this conflict um, when you ha- have to consider those who have already died or may die and those who may decide enough is enough and leave? I don't know, but it, uh, it was vulnerable to begin with, um, uh, just under a thousand.
0: Out of about two million?
1: Out of about 2.5 million, yeah.
0: Wow. And, and in, in Israel itself, what would you say the Christian population is there?
1: Under just under 200,000, something like 190,000 in, in the West, entire West Bank, including East Jerusalem, it's less than 50,000. And in fact, I, I actually think in terms of pure numbers, so to speak, that the Christian population in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, which is the occupied Palestinian territories other than Gaza, the decline in the Christian population is, is probably the most dramatic in the entire region.
0: And is this people being forced out of their homes, people being killed, people just deciding to get out? What's what's the cause?
1: Yeah. So I think in the West Bank, uh, in East Jerusalem, it, it's essentially people leaving. Why? Because of the occupation, because it's not a life worth living mm-hmm. and because they have the ability to to the, the, the wherewithal. Christians tend to be very well educated. That's true everywhere in the region but they also have you know, contacts in the diaspora around the world.
0: Hmm. Now, um, given the horrors we see uh, in, well, every day in Gaza, uh, and we look at the, the nature of this conflict, is there a sense in which the Christian communities, however small, have the potential to be a bridge? Are they, are they in any way seen as neutrals or trusted by both sides? How relevant is the Christian community to uh, any future for the region?
1: I think it depends from place to place um because so for example in Egypt if we're talking about the region in Egypt there are probably you know in excess of 12 million christians it's by far and away the most numerous uh population of christians in in the in the arab world and they're not going anywhere uh they are a very important part of egyptian society however they are also rather marginalized but in in general terms the answer to your question is yes um that the christians have a very, as it were, inspired by the gospel that there is a, they have a very non-violent approach to life. So they may wish to resist, for example, in, in, in the West Bank, they may resist the occupation, but they will only resist um, in, 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 in a peaceful way. Um, they tend to be well-educated, as I've mentioned, and that's partly because of the quality of, the, of Christian schools, and, and to some extent that is one of the benefits of missionaries' who went out to these parts, one of the slightly more positive legacies of, and there aren't many, of, of our colonial past. So good schools, well-educated, therefore um, often well-implanted in, in professions. They play an important role in society. At the same time, I think it's important to, to, to recognise it's a little bit of a two-edged sword. They There is a glass ceiling often. You can't go any further because you're, you're a Christian. But um, also they feel squeezed, they feel marginalised, they feel fearful, and they don't feel, frankly, supported by the West.
0: Well, we haven't got the time we would love to go into that in the depth that it requires, really. But as we just draw our conversation to a close, Tim, what would you like our listeners to be praying for when it comes to to your work?
1: Well, one of my colleagues um, likes to talk, uh, she talks a lot about, you know, the one household of God. I mean, we have this very strong sense that we're part of one family. And really, if one part of that, that the household is hurting, so should the other part of the household be hurting. Christians in the Middle East are part of that one household. They are an incredibly impressive part of that household, as well as, of course, being far more closely connected to the the, the birthplace of Jesus uh, than we are. And so they are precious and, but they are vulnerable. So I, I would want my Christian brothers and sisters in the UK to be aware of them, to, to try to inform themselves about their, uh, who they are. I mean, I think most fundamentally to pray for two things. One, peace. And secondly, that they be sustained sustained um, you know in terms of their population their numbers their communities but sustained in their faith Uh, although quite frankly um, for the most part they have a lot to teach us about what it means to be a faithful Christian particularly in very difficult times.
0: Tim thanks very much we will indeed pray as you have asked and we're very grateful to you for being with us today but also for your work in the region and for Sharing that with us. Uh, God bless you and God bless what you do with Embrace the Middle East.
1: Thanks very much, Tim, and God bless you and your work. Thank you.
0: Each week, we give you the opportunity for you to ask any question you'd like about this mucky business of politics. Now, it might be how an aspect of this world impacts us Christians who work within it, or maybe. There's a particular issue that you're struggling to make sense of. Well, I'd love to hear from you and attempt an answer. So please drop me an email to farren at premier.org.uk. Well, this week, Jack in Scotland, and he doesn't say where, and I know it's a big place, but Jack in Scotland, he's been in touch and he says the following Tim, I support remaining in the Union, largely for the same reasons as I voted to remain in the EU, working together, solidarity, etc. And I can understand, though disagree with, nationalists who want to leave the Union in order to pursue policies that are more just, etc. That's a matter of judgment, not principle. But there is a strain of Christian Scottish nationalism that argues something like this. There are lots of nations in the Bible. God loves nations and wants them to flourish. Scotland is a nation. Scotland must become independent to flourish according to God's will. How would you recommend Christians engage with nationalism? Does it matter what brand the nationalism portrays? That's a great question, Jack, one that we haven't considered very much on this programme and people outside Scotland perhaps haven't even thought about at all. My sense is, yes, that it is right, um, particularly in the Old Testament. Lots of talk about nations. But I don't think that means that any country uh, or any part of a country um must, in order to be pleasing to God, uh, be independent. I remember very well being at University of Newcastle and dealing with a question on one of my politics papers that said the following, make the case for the Geordie nation. Geordies, of course, are uh, is Are there uh, examples or are there characteristics about uh, people from Newcastle and around, Geordies, that makes them a nation? If so... Would I, as a Christian, have then been duty bound to make sure that Newcastle became a separate independent state? Well, discuss. I don't think that it does necessarily follow. But it also doesn't follow that Christians cannot be nationalists. Yeah, you know, We know about Kate Forbes. We know of um, many other of our friends who are in the Scottish National Party or support Scottish independence and would describe themselves as, as nationalists, perhaps but who are committed Christians. So I think going back to your question, Jack, it is a matter of judgment and not of biblical principle. Uh, I think it's entirely possible for Christians to be nationalists. I'm not one. Um, And for a number of reasons, I tend to think, as you do, Jack, that it's better if we work together and seeking separation tends to be a negative thing rather than a positive. Nationalism can be a a force for progress in some cases, but of course, sometimes it ends up being somewhat exclusive. Somebody very unkindly once said that patriots love their country, nationalists sometimes hate their neighbours. Well, that's obviously too broad brush brush and won't be at all true of many of our SNP friends. Nevertheless, it does remind us that maybe Christians should be rebuking ourselves if we allow ourselves to be in a position where we are divisive people, considering ourselves and our nationality to be better than anybody else's. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. Well, let's close our time together as we normally do in prayer. Uh, Loving Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the work of Tim Livesey and Embrace the Middle East. We thank you for Christians in Israel, in Palestine and elsewhere in the Middle East. They are small in number, but their God is mighty and sovereign. And so we pray to you, the mighty sovereign God, to protect Christians in the Middle East and to leave them or lead them to be really powerful, significant witnesses in the midst of the terrible, uh, awful situation that is currently going on. Bring peace, we pray, to that region. Uh, Bring people to put their trust in you, Lord Jesus, in that region and strengthen and grow your church and every member of it. Uh, Lord, we uh, also want to thank you for our king, King Charles III, and indeed for his prime minister, Rishi Sunak, as we look at and examine the king's speech. Uh, we pray you give wisdom to ministers and civil servants charged with bringing the elements of the king's speech into legislation. Bless those who legislate, members of parliament and lords, uh, to ensure that there is proper scrutiny and decisions are made that are wise and in the public interest and not for selfish interest, neither the opposition nor the government. And Lord, we just lift up to you our country at this time and pray you give our leaders great wisdom. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us again for this week's show. Don't forget, you can catch up on past episodes, which, of course, feature interviews with party leaders, former government ministers and MPs from all the major parties. All you need to do is search for A Mucky Business on your chosen podcast provider or head to premier.plus forward slash A Mucky Business. See you very soon.